Satori Magazine is a space for thought-provoking content. By exposing ourselves to ideas, thoughts, experiences and life lessons, we might stumble across something which gives us new insight or a change of perspective. I'm Lawrence Rice and I've been chatting to people about life, inspiration, the universe and whatever else pops up along the way. What you're about to hear is the edited results of those recordings. The voices you will hear belong to Pico Ayer, Lawrence Torcello, Elisha Goldstein, BJ Miller, Parneet Pal, and Lynn Didanen. Today's main contributor is Parneet Pal. It's a beautiful morning in uh, Vancouver, Canada, where I am. And uh, it's a bit cloudy. Uh, it's going to rain today as usual, but uh, it's beautiful. Yes, I'm, it's, it's early in the morning for me, but this is usually the time where I'm most creative. So this is a good time for us to chat. One, two, Canada water. Just like many other of my peers growing up in Bombay, I wasn't interested in um, religion or spirituality. I thought it was too cool for that. I was, um, I was very interested in science and biology. I loved learning about the human body um, mm. through that science lens. Uh, and so even though, you know, in India, it's impossible to grow up without um, a, a big dose of spirituality in one way or the other. Yeah. And my parents practiced yoga um, at home. They meditated. But, and I never, I never really participated in those activities or just sort of on a very superficial level. And it was much later, I think, when I was really grappling with um, what I call my quarter life crisis, which was the end of medical residency, where I was burnt out from from the residency. Mm. Um, I was also at this kind of uh, fork in the road in terms of what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I was noticing that clinical practice or traditional clinical practice was not making me happy, and yet I had invested so many years of my life uh, into this profession. Uh, and gotten into some amazing programs. You know, I mean, growing up in India, I come from a very humble background. And so for me to be able to then come to the US and get into amazing programs at Ivy League schools, it was a huge investment mm. of time, effort, and, and money. So I was at that, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then um, that coincided with um, one of my family members facing a very devastating diagnosis. And I felt really helpless. Mm. And I was just confronted with all of these emotions of anger and sadness and grief and disappointment and just a sense of futility about uh, the future, both for myself, but also this uncertainty that my family was, was in the midst of. And that's when I realized I didn't have any resources. I didn't know what to do with my emotions or how to navigate them more effectively. And, and that became the stimulus or the motivation for me to start exploring all the questions that I think all of us, when we go through our crucible moments in life, mm. you know, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose here? And how can I be most useful in the world? But also very importantly, how do I get out of this mess? that my mind seems to be creating for me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I started reading about many different things. You know, this, I've, uh, you know, up until then, all of my education had been focused on science and becoming a physician and 
So it was sort of a very one track, one kind of focus of of learning about the world. And I just started reading very random things. I started to learn a little bit of French. I started reading about art, something I knew nothing about, still know very little about, but um, started reading about philosophy and somehow stumbled my way into learning a little bit more about um, Hindu philosophy. So not from a religious perspective, but our most ancient scriptures, you know, the Vedanta and specifically Advaita Vedanta, which is a non-dual Vedanta. And um, also a Buddhism. And, and in coming across that mode of thinking, um, it became sort of the first, um, first of my forays into meditation and mindfulness. And uh, initially it was, it was a bit of a struggle because uh, a lot of those practices started with concentration practices, you know, just focus on your breath, close your eyes, focus on your breath. Mm. And I found that very hard to do. I have a very analytical mind that always wants to know why and where is this going and what's happening in my body. And yeah. Um, and so, so that wasn't working for me in the beginning. But then I also came across a compassion practice, uh, a loving kindness practice. And that was it. I mean, that was like night and day. It it spoke to me. It It provided me the kind of solace and reassurance that I needed at that time in terms of holding my difficult emotions in a more skillful way and not being carried away by them. Yeah, I was raised a Baptist right. until I went off to college. But you know what? I had a Catholic father. So I okay. I already knew that there was something going on that <laughs> yeah. wasn't like straightforward in terms of religion. So my views on that developed. Hmm. Yeah, I think the word developed would be better for me rather than abrupt changes or big differences between who I was then and who I am now. Mm. I think developed more information, more ways, more ways, more perspectives, certainly more cross-cultural uh, information that yeah. challenged some of this stuff that I would be reading in an anthropology book versus experiencing with uh, actual people <laughs> in a village. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, so not big abrupt changes. No, I don't yeah. think so. Tell me about your motorbike. Are you mm. still riding? I am. It's been a little while. It's in the shop right now getting, uh, it's going to be badass. It's getting some aftermarket treatment. It's going to be beautiful. Cannot wait to get it back. <laughs> but yes, I love that thing. Um, it's in, admittedly, you know, re, I can't believe it's legal, these motorcycle things. I mean, they're ridiculous, <laughs> you know, yeah. honestly. But they're so much fun, uh, yeah. But for me, it's a, it's a it's a holier experience. Or, or it's well, again, I think we have hit on so many important themes and a sort of a singular theme. It 
it allows me to experience the tension in between all these states like you and I have been talking this whole conversation. Am I in control? You bet I am in a way. Am I totally not in control? You bet I'm not in control. It's all this stuff. Like yeah, yeah, I am yeah. completely focused and I'm completely relaxed. I am, you know, all these sort of things kind of come together. I'm in mm. my head. I'm in my body. It's complete alignment. Otherwise you get in real trouble. If you're kind of trying to ride a motorcycle with your brain, just your brain be careful if you're trying to write just with your body be careful so anyway it is a, it is a synthesis it's a sort of a, a moment of synthesis of a lot of the forces coming to bear that we've been talking about with the added jo- joys and dangers of consequence there's so much consequence to every little motion everything you do uh-huh. um so all you put all that together and I just love the hell out of it. And it's purely in a city. It's not a transport. It's not a means to an end. It's not like for me to go to point H. It's not, you know, it can be transport, but most of the time I go drive around in a loop. It is purely for the experience of it. I don't know how it's going to feel. And so anyway, the, the, the reason I love that thing is gets it very much of trying to bring everything we've been talking about together into a moment. And yes. it does that. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you think it was going to be that before you got your motorbike? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes. Well, in part because I've always loved being on two wheels and just sort of this idea, you know, you have to be in motion, you fall over and this way you engage in this ever unfurling moment by moment relationship with the planet, with the ground, with all sorts of physics happening. Mm. So I've always really loved that. I've always I spent a lot of my childhood on a bicycle. So I, I knew enough. It was going to be a bicycle on steroids, and that's exactly what it has felt like. Nice. And was that? Did your big sister or one of your friends have one? Was there some link to motorbikes? Just or was um, it just you having a bike when you were a kid? Yeah. One of my best. Yes. Well, being on bicycles and BMX and uh, as kids, and yes, there was a little period where a couple of us had access to mopeds. You know, these teeny little thingies, which was kind of got interested in a motorized bicycle enough. Mm-hmm. But um, probably my buddy Johnny Burr, my oldest friend, a really dear friend of mine, still too, just like Justin. Um, Johnny Bird got into motorcycles, so I was probably following, you know, following his lead there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could. I had a BMX uh, when I was a kid, but mm. I wasn't great on it. Bikes. I'm not. I'm not so good. I, skateboarding. Mm. I really loved. Really oh, yeah. into that. Um, that was yeah. I, yeah. I I tried that once. I was terrible. Wow. I don't know how you guys do that. I mean, it's so. Yeah. Okay. I'll stick with the bike. You stick with the skateboard. Fair enough. As a deal. I was literally dipping my toe into anything and everything I could. I, I, the internet was my friend yeah. and uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I, yeah, I would just go down many different rabbit holes as I was browsing. And uh, there were, there were also um, books uh, that came to my rescue um, and not any, uh, I don't think any well-known books at the time, but I think just articles or, just books that were lying around in the house that were pointing to that uh, Advaitic Vedantic philosophy that I was that I was trying to understand. Books on Buddhism, but also books on the science 
well, fewer books, but more articles and papers on what happens in the brain and body when you meditate and practice mindfulness and compassion. So I was always trying to balance um, the experiential with the, the mechanism of um, the, the transformation and the changes that I was experiencing while doing these practices. Elephant and Castle, London Road. Actually, my tutors were great in saying that uh, that's that. Of course, you don't know. That's okay, um, because a lot of a lot of stuff with music is about really using your ear. And when you watch a teacher say, "Oh, yeah, that's this frequency," you can tell it's about two and a half thousand hertz. So, how do you do that? How do you do that? I say, well, I've been doing it for twenty years. Of course, I know how to do it. And of course, you don't. But just just keep listening, and you're, that's all you need to do. But really, I mean, again, I think. So much comes down to the willingness to be comfortable with not knowing things and the freedom that comes from that, whether we're talking about parenthood or whether we're talking about uh, writing or what have you. Uh, the older I get, I think the more I appreciate the importance of, of embracing, you know, embracing my own ignorance. I, I suppose the older I get, I also appreciate Plato more. And so, as we were discussing before, this is a real essential theme uh, in, in his early dialogues, fo focusing on Socrates, is this willingness to embrace your fallibility. And how do you do that? By, by constantly uh, finding the courage to admit when you don't know something. I, I think it's a courageous act to admit that you don't know something. Mm. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about disinformation. One of the things that I find works best with people, if, if they seem really obstinate, um, denying the existence of climate change, for example, since that's something I work on, mm -hmm. uh, is to, instead of trying to convince them, to ask them why they think yeah. what they think. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the act of explaining, of course, you can't always hope for this, but in the act of explaining why they think something or where this information comes from, mm. they actually realize themselves that maybe they're not as confident in it yeah. as they thought that they were. Yeah. Um, once, uh, uh, you know, I had a student and we were talking about climate change and the student uh, didn't, you know, uh, accept that this was necessarily a real thing and thought that um, perhaps there was another story. So I, instead of trying to argue with the student, I just asked, well, you know, where did you hear this claim that, that you, and the student said, YouTube. And the student, as soon as he said it out loud, mm, yeah, um, <laughs> he realized uh, that, oh, maybe that wasn't the best source of information. Yeah. So, but, but again, that's, that sort of willingness to hear another person out, I think is, is, is part of that willingness to be wrong yourself. 
yes. uh, or to admit that you don't know something yourself. Um, even when you, uh, there, are, there are times when we know that we're not wrong about things. Uh, sure. the scientific consensus on climate change is a good example. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of a, a faux open-mindedness someone can, could uh, get into when they talk about, oh, I'll hear you. No, I know that, that I'm right about this particular thing. Mm. But a willingness to put your ego aside and let the other person explain why they think they're right is sometimes uh, helpful in breaking down barriers between mutual understanding. Yeah. And opening, opening the path to maybe um, some progress. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like, what I like about that is that also comes back to that point as well that you you've got them to say it out loud and that goes back to that sort of like by putting it out there they they are able to come mm. to their own realizations as exactly. well and their thoughts change as they yeah. push them out into the world good point it does come right back to what we were discussing earlier mm. yeah fantastic yeah and i i think actually i've really tried to i, I went to a church of england primary school which was really the, the main uh religious teachings I, i've had and um, my parents were actually really great. I think it was the best, it was a really lovely small school and it was very local. And they sent me there and they, um, oh, excuse me. Uh, they sent me there and they didn't really explain religion or anything. They just sent me there. So it, it, it seemed clear to me that a lot of the stories were fun stories. But the one thing which I realized now in the last five, 10 years, looking back that really, really stuck with me was to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to walk a mile in their shoes and um and to really actually if you actually do that and try and understand where they are coming from um you you can at least get some get some common if not common ground it, it can just help to calm you in in mm -hmm. situations of frustration and mm -hmm. to try and think well I don't understand this person's actions, but what would make, what, where would I have to be in order to act in this way, which I don't understand? Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's what you're doing there as well. Although, although maybe, as you say, if you really, really know the science, you're, there's an element of playing along um, mm -hmm. in, in a, but you're still doing it in a very um, gentle uh, way and a, as a companion but I think for me, uh, yeah. wherever I've tried to do that and to really think where, who is this person and how can I try and understand them, it's, it's really helped. Yeah, I, I think even when we really disagree with one another, there's a, a, a sense of goodwill that comes from that you're willing to listen to that other person. I find it's often very useful to just state very clearly up front how I disagree with the person and acknowledge that this is something we very much disagree with hmm. or disagree on. In, in doing that, um, you sort of show the other person where you are and you're still willing to hear why they believe what they do. Hmm. There's sort of an honesty about, about that, that I can, I think sometimes can bridge gaps. Mm. It's really important. To a degree, when you learn something, 
you learn how to do it properly. Uh, and, but the, the other side of that is you learn what you were doing wrong. And while that can be good, it can also be bad because you start to think, I didn't do that right. I shouldn't do it like that. It has to be like this. Exactly. You forget to do it improperly. Mm. And if we think of the music, the art, the, the writing that we've adored, I think a lot of it really startles us because it's done improperly. You're, you're so right. Um, that, that as with, with human behavior, that notion of the good can paralyze us. Um, mm. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the great spirits that we know and admire through the ages um, broke all the rules. I mean, Jesus was probably one of those and Buddha uh, another. And as you probably know, I've spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. And one of the things that's so impressive about him is he's probably got a keener sense of the good action and the conscience than anybody I'm likely to meet. But he's so spontaneous and, and ready to go wherever the situation takes him. Um, and most of us seeing him wish we had a tenth that degree of, of freedom and I suppose you could say confidence. This is you, you're writing that, and you're saying, I can breathe easy knowing I'm not in charge. This lack of control is surprisingly comforting. Absolutely. And I think it, um, I think what you're alluding to is some of the realization that I was happening, that I was having then, but of course that has continued and grown over the years, is um, this idea that, you know, when we think about, when I think about myself and in trying to understand myself, it's it's been the best way for me to understand the universe, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, and appreciating the mystery, you know, we like to think that we know how things work. Um, but if you actually, you know, just close your eyes and think about the fact that every single cell in your body knows exactly what it needs to do. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions happening this very second as I'm talking to you. Mm. And all of that is happening effortlessly. And all of and I know nothing about them. I don't need to know about them to, to, um, to breathe and to be alive. Mm. And then by extension, the same is true of everything around us, um, our natural ecosystems and and the planet and the cosmos uh, in, in general. And so it's uh, it's terrifying to know that very little is in your control. And yet at the same time, it's really freeing because it's like, wow, it's okay. You know, um, I don't understand most of this and yet everything seems to be working for the most part. And wow, that's a, that's a relief. I, I'm not in charge. And thank goodness I'm not in charge because, you know, who knows what I might do with, with the way that, you know, my mind works. And it's, it's really freeing. And, and, and I think this is the paradox that I've, it's been really fun to hold, which is like the mystery of the universe and our, and our brain and body, but also the things that we do know and the signs that we are aware of and, when and the biology and the mechanisms and the physiology that we have a really good handle on mm. because that provides us with a measure of agency which i think is really important for all of us to take responsibility for in our lives um you know and that's sort of been the the focus of my work has been to understand 
um, health and human performance and hopefully communicate that effectively. But the whole idea is that we do have an amazing body of work around the science of well-being and how can we use that um, to stay well, but more importantly, um, to start to notice the influence that our state of body and mind has on the people around us and on the planet as well. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by time and, you know, the, the, the idea of time being relative. Mm-hmm. And I love trying to get my head around that. And uh, when we were talking earlier about the balance between, um, between having your life going in, in a direction and the idea mm-hmm. of being open to things purely for the investigation mm-hmm. of that thing with no direction... Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but I started to think about, like, is that the start of time being relative? Because Mm -hmm. you're, in a way, when you're you're able to do that, you're experiencing things solely for the moment, but yet you're also able to be aware of the future and the past. And is it one of those, is is time being relative more of a lateral step? It sounds that way. That sounds right to me. That sounds right to me, because... There are such a thing as minutes, which are, you know, there are units of time that are consistent that you can peg to the motion of the moon and the sun and the stars. And I mean, that, mm, that yeah. is a, that is a, there's, it's pegged. It's not purely made up. I mean, it's, it's made up, but it's, but it's pegged to something that's happening irrespective of us experiencing it. And therefore it's a, there's an objectivity to the minutes in the world thing, that kind of time. But this sort of, uh, so that's real enough, but we're the ones who gave it that word. We're the ones who divided it up that way. And that sure shit isn't the only thing. That isn't the only game in town. Hmm. And that we can experience the relativity of time and just how when you're bored, time goes slowly. When you're happy, it goes quickly. You're like, bingo, bam, there you go. How it speeds up as we get older. I'm sure I'm 51 now. Holy shit, I can't believe that statement. Hmm. Uh, I remember when a year seemed like a long time, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, these are just daily experienceable things that I do think to reconcile. Yes, time is objective. Yes, time is subjective to stick with that language. Both are true. There's this qualitative time and there's this quantitative time. The Greeks had the Kairos and the Kronos. Mm. I mean, I'm sure there are other ways to conceive of it. But I think to your point, if I'm hearing you right, Laws, it's the point is this stuff is malleable. And that's a fantastic realization. And Mm. again, it gets out the, the wildness of getting to be you to realize that and experiencing and experience that. That is a wild gift we're given or whatever gift, whatever, I don't know what to call it, but it's pretty wild. Yeah, because I think a lot of this is about the fact that the truth is malleable and what can be true at one point, you know, as you say, the opposite can also be true at the same time or truth changes, the universe changes and shifts. And and then, yeah, you, I think that's kind of really awesome to understand. And, And then, yeah, part of that is that we can change. And just because we were someone yesterday it doesn't mean that we will or have to be that person tomorrow you know um amen i love that statement that's a huge one i mean i think we love stories living stories yeah yeah, yeah. but your story you can change it. you can dump one story and get another one you can you can write another one you know yes 
This would be a perfect time if I could ask you to recommend a book that you believe our listeners should read. So one of the books is uh, by David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist and an author. He's a brilliant writer. And he's written many books, but the one that I would recommend, it's a small book that you can read very quickly. It's called Sum, S-U-M, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. And I love this book and I recommend this book because David takes this journey um, uh, into imagining 40 different possible afterlives, you know, what happens to us after we die. And they range from the absurd to really funny to, to some very serious uh, possibilities. He weaves in science and love and desire and wisdom and romance. Um, you know, for example, there's one possible afterlife where uh, God is actually a microbe and he has no awareness of human beings. There's another possibility where... Um, you know, you end up after you die kind of working as a background character in everyone else's dreams. And so I, I just, um, you know, I think for any one of us who is kind of grappling with, you know, the nature of reality, who we are, what happens to us when we die, I, I think for me, this book was such a wonderful take on um, realizing one, to not take ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, also just uh, a reminder that so much as possible. There are so many possibilities uh, that we may not be aware of. So it's a, it's, it's a very enjoyable book. Uh, so I would highly recommend it. Finally, please, could you tell us about a moment of Satori or enlightenment, realization um, or understanding that you've experienced? So I cannot claim to have experienced enlightenment at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I've had a few glimpses of uh, moving in that direction. So I, I want to mention maybe a couple that were difference in the experience themselves, maybe even polar opposites, but I think they were both pointing in the same direction. So, you know, during during meditation and mindfulness practice, I've experienced both these polar opposite experiences, one of extreme calm and peace, but and the other one is one of the sense of unity and connectedness um, and even a a measure of joy. But these micro moments that I've experienced during meditation were really magnified in these two kind of macro moments that I had. So the first one was uh, many years ago, I went skydiving for the first time. It was a tandem skydive outside of Barcelona, it was a Costa Brava coast of Spain. And my instructor was this world-class um, uh, skydiver. And, you know, the jump itself was exhilarating. Hmm. It was, you know, I like to say it was like the longest and the shortest few minutes of my life. Sure. But for me, that moment of Sartori was not so much in the jump itself, but the days after. Hmm. I was very aware of, you know, I knew that there would be this cocktail of neurotransmitters and hormones swirling in my head after the jump, right? So that mix of serotonin and dopamine and endorphins. And I I was expecting that, Mm. but I didn't realize the magnitude of um, that effect. And I, I don't know how to describe it. It was 
the sense of complete calm and peace where it was so easy that I didn't have to make an effort to sort of step back to to separate myself from my thinking and my body. So, you know, everything that we were talking about, not having, not being identified with my mind and body became so much easier. Right. I could just be that witness of my life and mm. it didn't matter what was going on. I was just very peaceful um, about it. So that was, that was a, a wonderful experience. Um, and then the polar opposite was uh, I had the, great good fortune of snorkeling um, uh, at the Great Barrier Reef um, in Australia. And again, my first time there, and again, I, I don't know how to describe it. So I wasn't expecting this at all. Uh, I was snorkeling and the water was pristine. And we were on, on a part of the reef, which has been really beautifully preserved. And as I, as I put my head underwater and I saw the coral and the fish, and then a few minutes later, there was this giant green turtle that came by. Um, I'm at a loss for words because I had this explosion of joy. It just sort of this primal sense of joy and ecstasy that I have never experienced before, ever. And the sense that, the sense of unity that, that I was just one with the coral and the fish and that beautiful turtle that I would remember forever. Yeah. So yeah, so it was, yeah. So it was just a sense of complete unity and feeling that all of those, creatures were a part of me and I was a part of them.